Chapter Twenty Seven of the Rise of Silas Lapham by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyat. Irene did not leave her mother in any illusion concerning her cousin Will and herself. She said they had all been as nice to her as they could be, and when Mrs. Lapham hinted at what had been in her thoughts, or her hopes rather, Irene severely snubbed the notion. She said that he was as good as engaged to a girl out there, and that he had never dreamt of her. Her mother wondered at her severity. In these few months the girl had toughened and hardened. She had lost all her babyish dependence and pliability. She was like iron, and here and there she was sharpened to a cutting edge. It had been a life-and-death struggle with her. She had conquered but she had also necessarily lost much. Perhaps what she had lost was not worth keeping, but at any rate she had lost it. She required from her mother a strict and accurate account of her father's affairs, so far as Mrs. Lapham knew them, and she showed a business-like quickness in comprehending them that Penelope never pretended to. With her sister she ignored the past as completely as it was possible to do, and she treated both Corey and Penelope with the justice which their innocence of voluntary offense deserved. It was a difficult part, and she kept away from them as much as she could. She had been easily excused on a plea of fatigue from her journey, when Mr. and Mrs. Corey had called the day after her arrival, and Mrs. Lapham being still unwell, Penelope received them alone. The girl had instinctively judged best that they should know the worst at once, and she let them have the full brunt of the drawing-room while she was screwing her courage up to come down and see them. She was afterwards, months afterwards, able to report to Corey that when she entered the room his father was sitting with his hat on his knees, a little tilted away from the emancipation group, as if he expected the Lincoln to hit him with that lifted hand of benediction, and that Mrs. Corey looked as if she were not sure but the eagle pecked. But for the time being Penelope was nearly crazed as might be by the complications of her position, and received her visitors with a piteous distraction which could not fail of touching Bromfield Corey's Italianized sympatheticism. He was very polite and tender with her at first, and ended by making a joke with her, to which Penelope responded in her sort. He said he hoped they parted friends, if not quite acquaintances, and she said she hoped they would able to recognize each other if they ever met again. "'This is what I meant by her pertness,' said Mrs. Corey, when they were driving away. "'Was it very pert?' he queried. "'The child had to answer something.' "'I would much rather she had answered nothing under the circumstances,' said Mrs. Corey. "'However,' she added hopelessly, "'Oh, she's a merry little grig, you can see that, and there's no harm in her. I can understand why a formal fellow like Tom should be taken with her. She hasn't the least reverence, I suppose, and joked with a young man from the beginning. You must remember, Anna, that there was a time when you liked my joking.' It was a very different thing. But that drawing-room, pursued Corey, really I don't see how Tom stands that. Anna, 
A terrible thought occurs to me. Fancy Tom being married in front of that group, with a floral horseshoe and tuberoses coming down on either side of it. "'Bromfield!' cried his wife. "'You are unmerciful.' "'No, no, my dear,' he argued. "'Merely imaginative. And I can even imagine that little thing finding Tom just the least bit slow, at times, if it were not for his goodness. Tom is so kind that I am convinced he sometimes feels your joke in his heart when his head isn't quite clear about it. Well, we will not despond, my dear. Your father seemed actually to like her, Mrs. Corey reported to her daughters, very much shaken in her own prejudices by the fact. If the girl were not so offensive to his fastidiousness, there might be some hope that she was not so offensive as Mrs. Corey had thought. I wonder how she will strike you, she concluded, looking from one daughter to another, as if trying to decide which of them would like Penelope least. Irene's return and the visit of the Corys formed a distraction for the Laphams in which their impending troubles seemed to hang further aloof, but it was only one of those reliefs which mark the course of adversity, and it was not one of the cheerful reliefs. At any other time, either incident would have been an anxiety and care for Mrs. Lapham, which she would have found hard to bear, but now she almost welcomed them. At the end of three days Lapham returned, and his wife met him as if nothing unusual had marked their parting. She reserved her atonement for a fitter time. He would know now, from the way she acted, that she felt all right towards him. He took very little note of her manner but met his family with an austere quiet that puzzled her, and a sort of pensive dignity that refined his rudeness to an effect that sometimes comes to such natures after long sickness, when the animal strength has been taxed and lowered. He sat silent with her at the table after their girls had left them alone, and seeing that he did not mean to speak, she began to explain why Irene had come home, and to praise her. "'Yes, she done right,' said Lapham. "'It was time for her to come,' he added gently. Then he was silent again, and his wife told him of Corey's having been there, and of his father's and mother's calling. "'I guess Penn's concluded to make it up,' she said. "'Well, we'll see about that,' said Lapham. And now she could no longer forbear to ask him about his affairs." "'I don't know as I've got any right to know anything about it,' she said humbly, with remote allusion to her treatment of him. "'But I can't help wanting to know. How are things going, Sigh?' "'Bad,' he said, pushing his plate from him, and tilting himself back in his chair. "'Or they ain't going at all. They've stopped.' "'What do you mean, Sigh? she persisted, tenderly. "'I've got to the end of my string.' "'Tomorrow I shall call a meeting of my creditors "'and put myself in their hands. "'If there's enough left to satisfy them, I'm satisfied.' "'His voice dropped in his throat. "'He swallowed once or twice, and then did not speak. "'Do you mean that it's all over with you?' she asked fearfully. "'He bowed his big head, wrinkled and grizzled, "'and after a while he said, it's hard to realize it, but I guess there ain't any doubt about it. He drew a long breath, 
and then he explained to her about the West Virginia people, and how he had got an extension of the first time they had given him, and had got a man to go up to Lapham with him and look at the works, a man that had turned up in New York and wanted to put money in the business. His money would have enabled Lapham to close with the West Virginians. "'The devil was in it right straight along,' said Lapham. "'All I had to do was keep quiet about that other company.' It was Rogers and his property right over again. He liked the look of things, and he wanted to go into the business, and he had money, plenty. It would have saved me with those West Virginia folks. But I had to tell him how I stood. I had to tell him all about it and what I wanted to do. He began to backwater in a minute, and the next morning I saw that it was up with him. He's gone back to New York. I've lost my chance. Now all I've got to do is save the pieces. Will, will everything go? she asked. I can't tell yet, but they shall have a chance at everything, every dollar, every cent. I'm sorry for you, Persis, and the girls. Oh, don't talk of us. She was trying to realize that the simple, rude soul to which her heart clove in her youth but which she had put to such cruel proof with her unsparing conscience and her unsparing tongue, had been equal to its ordeals, and had come out unscathed and unstained. He was able in his talk to make so little of them. He hardly seemed to see what they were. He was apparently not proud of them, and certainly not glad. If they were victories of any sort, he bore them with the patience of defeat. His wife wished to praise him, but she did not know how, so she offered him a little reproach, in which alone she touched the cause of her behavior at parting. "'Silas,' she asked after a long gaze at him, "'why didn't you tell me you had Jim Millen's girl there?' "'I didn't suppose you'd like it, Persis,' he answered. "'I did intend to tell you at first, but then I put—' I put it off. I thought you'd come round some day and find it out for yourself. I'm punished, said his wife, for not taking enough interest in your business to even come near it. If we're brought back to the day of small things, I guess it's a lesson for me, Silas. Oh, I don't know about the lesson, he said wearily. That night she showed him the anonymous scrawl which had kindled her fury against him. He turned it listlessly over in his hand. "'I guess I know who it's from,' he said, giving it back to her. "'And I guess you do too, Persis.' "'But how—how how could he?' "'Maybe he believed it,' said Lapham, with patience that cut her more keenly than any reproach. "'You did.' Perhaps because the process of his ruin had been so gradual, perhaps because the excitement of preceding events had exhausted their capacity for emotion, the actual consummation of his bankruptcy brought a relief, a repose to Lapham and his family, rather than a fresh sensation of calamity. In the shadow of his disaster they returned to something like their old united life. They were at least altogether again and it will be intelligible to those whom life has blessed with vicissitude 
that Lapham should come home the evening after he had given up everything to his creditors, and should sit down to his supper so cheerful that Penelope could joke him in the old way, and tell him that she thought from his looks that they had concluded to pay him a hundred cents on every dollar he owed them. As James Bellingham had taken so much interest in his troubles from the first, Lapham thought he ought to tell him, before taking the final step, just how things stood with him, and what he meant to do. Bellingham made some futile inquiries about his negotiations with the West Virginians, and Lapham told him they had come to nothing. He spoke of the New York man, and the chance that he might have sold out half his business to him. But, of course, I had to let him know how it was about those fellows. Of course, said Bellingham, not seeing till afterwards the full significance of Lapham's action. All those who were concerned in his affairs said he behaved well, and even more than well, when it came to the worst. The prudence, the good sense which he had shown in the first years of his success, and of which his great prosperity seemed to have bereft him, came back, and these qualities, used in his own behalf, commended him as much to his creditors as the anxiety he showed that no one should suffer by him. This even made some of them doubtful of his sincerity. They gave him time, and there would have been no trouble in his resuming on the old basis if the ground had not been cut from under him by the competition of the West Virginia Company. He saw himself that it was useless to try to go on in the old way, and he preferred to go back and begin the world anew where he had first begun it, in the hills at Lapham. He put the house at Nankeen Square, with everything else he had, into the payment of his debts, and Mrs. Lapham found it easier to leave it for the old farmstead in Vermont than it would have been to go from that home of many years to the new house on the waterside of Beacon. This thing and that is embittered to us, so that we may be willing to relinquish it. The world, life itself, is embittered to most of us, so that we are glad to have done with them at last, and this home was haunted with such memories to each of those who abandoned it that to go was less exile than escape. Mrs. Lapham could not look into Irene's room without seeing the girl there before her glass, tearing the poor little keepsakes of her hapless fancy from their hiding-places to take them and fling them in passionate renunciation upon her sister. She could not come to the sitting-room, where her little ones had grown up, without starting at the thought of her husband sitting so many weary nights at his desk there, trying to fight his way back to hope out of the ruin into which he was slipping. When she remembered the night that Rogers came, she hated the place. Irene accepted her release from the house eagerly, and was glad to go before and prepare for the family at Lapham. Penelope was always ashamed of her engagement there. It must seem better somewhere else, and she was glad to go too. No one but Lapham, in fact, felt the pang of parting in all its keenness. Whatever regret the others had was softened to them by the likeness of their flitting to many of those removals for the summer which they had made in the late spring when they left Nankeen Square. They were going directly into the country instead of to the seaside first. But Lapham, 
who usually remained in town after they had gone, knew all the difference. For his nerves there was no mechanical sense of coming back. This was as much the end of his proud, prosperous life as death itself could have been. He was returning to begin life anew, but he knew as well as he knew that he should not find his vanished youth in his native hills, that it could never again be the triumph that it had been. That was impossible, not only in his stiffened and weakened forces, but in the very nature of things. He was going back, by grace of the man whom he owed money, to make what he could out of the one chance which his successful rivals had left him. In one phase his paint had held its own against bad times and ruinous competition, and it was with the hope of doing still more with the Persis brand that he now set himself to work. The West Virginia people confessed that they could not produce those fine grades, and they willingly left the field to him. A strange, not ignoble friendliness existed between Lapham and the three brothers. They had used him fairly. It was their facilities that had conquered him, not their ill-will, and he recognized in them without enmity the necessity to which he had yielded. If he succeeded in his efforts to develop his paint in this direction, it must be for a long time on a small scale compared with his former business, which it could never equal, and he brought to them the flagging energies of an elderly man. He was more broken than he knew by his failure. It did not kill, as it often does, but it weakened the spring once so strong and elastic. He lapsed more and more into acquiescence with his changed condition, and that bragging note of his was rarely sounded. He worked faithfully enough in his enterprise, but sometimes he failed to seize occasions that in his younger days he would have turned to golden account. His wife saw in him a daunted look that made her heart ache for him. One result of his friendly relations with the West Virginia people was that Corey went in with them, and the fact that he did so solely upon Lapham's advice and by means of his recommendation was perhaps the colonel's proudest consolation. Corey knew the business thoroughly, and after half a year at Kanawha Falls and in the office at New York, he went out to Mexico and Central America to see what could be done for them on the ground which he had theoretically studied with Lapham. Before he went, he came up to Vermont and urged Penelope to go with him. He was to be first in the city of Mexico, and if his mission was successful, he was to be kept there and in South America several years, watching the new railroad enterprises and the development of mechanical agriculture and whatever other undertakings offered an opening for the introduction of the paint. They were all young men together, and Corey, who had put his money into the company, had a proprietary interest in the success which they were eager to achieve. "'There's no more reason now, and no less than there ever was,' mused Penelope, in counsel with her mother. "'Why I should say yes, or why I should say no. Everything else changes, but this is just where it was a year ago. It don't go backward, and it don't go forward. Mother, I believe I shall take the bit in my teeth, if anybody will put it there.' "'It isn't the same as it was,' suggested her mother. 
You can see that Irene's all over it. That's no credit to me, said Penelope. I ought to be just as much ashamed as ever. You no need ever to be ashamed. That's true, too, said the girl, and I can sneak off to Mexico with a good conscience if I could make my mind up to it, she laughed. Well, if I could be sentenced to be married, or somebody would up and forbid the bans, I don't know what to do about it. Her mother left her to carry her hesitation back to Corey, and she said now they had better go all over it and try to reason it out. And I hope that whatever I do, it won't be for my own sake, but for others. Corey said he was sure of that and looked at her with eyes of patient tenderness. "'I don't say it is wrong,' she proceeded, rather aimlessly. "'But I can't make it seem right. I don't know whether I can make you understand, but the idea of being happy, when everybody else is so miserable, is more than I can endure. It makes me wretched.' "'Then perhaps that's your share of the common suffering,' suggested Corey, smiling. Oh, you know it isn't. You know it's nothing. Oh, one of the reasons is what I told you once before, that as long as father is in trouble I can't let you think of me. Now that he's lost everything? She bent her eyes inquiringly upon him, as if for the effect of this argument. I don't think that's a very good reason, he answered seriously, but smiling still. Do you believe me when I tell you that I love you? "'Why, I suppose I must,' she said, dropping her eyes. "'Then why shouldn't I think all the more of you on account of your father's loss? "'You didn't suppose I cared for you because he was prosperous?' "'There was a shade of reproach, ever so delicate and gentle, in his smiling question, which she felt. "'No, I couldn't think such a thing of you. "'I—I I don't know what I meant. "'I meant that—' She could not go on and say that she had felt herself more worthy of him because of her father's money. It would not have been true, yet there was no other explanation. She stopped and cast a helpless glance at him. He came to her aid. I understand why you shouldn't wish me to suffer by your father's misfortunes. Yes, that was it, and there's too great a difference every way. We ought to look at that again. You mustn't pretend that you don't know it, for that wouldn't be true. Your mother will never like me, and perhaps, perhaps I shall not like her. Well, said Corey, a little daunted, you won't have to marry my family. Ah, uh, that isn't the point. I know it, he admitted. I won't pretend that I don't see what you mean, but I'm sure that all the differences would disappear when you come to know my family better. "'I'm not afraid, but you and my mother will like each other. She can't help it,' he exclaimed, less judicially than he had hitherto spoken, and he went on to urge some points of doubtful tenability. "'We have our ways, and you have yours, and while I don't say but what you and my mother and sisters would be a little strange together at first, it would soon wear off on both sides. There can't be anything hopelessly different in you all.' It wouldn't be any difference to me. Do you think it would be pleasant to have you on my side against your mother? There won't be any sides. Just tell me what it is you're afraid of. Afraid? 
thinking of, then? I don't know. It isn't anything they say or do, she explained, with her eyes intent on his. It's what they are. I couldn't be natural with them, and if I can't be natural with people, I'm disagreeable. Can you be natural with me? Oh, I'm not afraid of you. I never was. That was the trouble from the beginning. Well, then, that's all that's necessary. And it never was the least trouble to me. It made me untrue to Irene. You mustn't say that. You were always true to her. She cared for you first. Well, but I never cared for her at all, he besought her. She thought you did. That was nobody's fault, and I can't let you make it yours. My dear. Wait, we must understand each other, said Penelope, rising from her seat to prevent an advance he was making from his. I want you to realize the whole affair. Should you want a girl who hadn't a cent in the world, and felt different in your mother's company, and had cheated and betrayed her own sister? I want you. Very well, then, you can't have me. I should always despise myself. I ought to give you up for all these reasons. Yes, I must. She looked at him intently, and there was a tentative quality in her affirmations. Is this your answer? he said. I must submit. If I asked too much of you, I was wrong, and good-bye. He held out his hand, and she put hers in it. You think I'm capricious and fickle, she said. I can't help it. I don't know myself. I can't keep to one thing for half a day at a time. But it's right for us to part. Yes, it must be. It must be, she repeated, and I shall try to remember that. Goodbye. I will try to keep that in mind, and you will too. You won't care very soon. I didn't mean that, no. I know how true you are, but you will soon look at me differently, and see that even if there hadn't been this about Irene, I was not the one for you. You do think so, don't you? she pleaded, clinging to his hand. I'm not at all what they would like your family. I felt that. I am little and black and homely, and they don't understand my way of talking, and now that we've lost everything, no, I'm not fit. Good-bye. You're quite right not to have patience with me any longer. I've tried you enough. I ought to be willing to marry you against their wishes if you want me to, but I can't make the sacrifice. I'm too selfish for that. All at once she flung herself on his breast. I can't even give you up. I shall never dare look anyone in the face again. Go, go, but take me with you. I tried to do it without you. I gave it a fair trial, and it was a dead failure. Oh, poor Irene, how could she give you up? Corey went back to Boston immediately and left Penelope, as he must, to tell her sister that they were to be married. She was spared from the first advance toward this by an accident or a misunderstanding. 
Irene came straight to her after Corey was gone, and demanded, "'Penelope Lapham, have you been such a ninny as to send that man away on my account?' Penelope recoiled from this terrible courage. She did not answer directly, and Irene went on, "'Because if you did, I'll thank you to bring him back again. I'm not going to have him thinking that I'm dying for a man that never cared for me. It's insulting, and I'm not going to stand it. Now you just send for him.' "'Oh, I will, Reen,' gasped Penelope. And then she added, shamed out of her prevarication by Irene's haughty magnanimity, "'I have. That is, he's coming back.' Irene looked at her a moment, and then, whatever thought was in her mind, said fiercely, "'Well!' and left her to her dismay, her dismay and her relief, for they both knew that this was the last time that they should ever speak of that again. The marriage came after so much sorrow and trouble, and the fact was received with so much misgiving for the past and future that it brought Lapham none of the triumph in which he had once exulted at the thought of an alliance with the Corys. Adversity had so far been his friend that it had taken from him all hope of the social success for which people crawl and truckle, and restored him, through failure and doubt and heartache, the manhood which his prosperity had so nearly stolen from him. Neither he nor his wife thought now that their daughter was marrying a Corey. They thought only that she was giving herself to the man who loved her, and their acquiescence was sobered still further by the presence of Irene. Their hearts were far more with her. Again and again Mrs. Lapham said she did not see how she could go through with it. "'I can't make it seem right,' she said. "'It is right,' steadily answered the Colonel. "'Yes, I know, but it don't seem so.' It would be easy to point out traits in Penelope's character which finally reconciled all her husband's family and endeared her to them. These things continually happen in novels, and the Corys, as they had always promised themselves to do, made the best and not the worst of Tom's marriage. They were people who could value Lapham's behavior as Tom reported it to them. They were proud of him, and Bromfield Corey, who found a delicate, aesthetic pleasure in the heroism with which Lapham had withstood Rogers and his temptations, something finely dramatic and unconsciously effective, wrote him a letter which would once have flattered the rough soul almost to ecstasy, though he now affected to slight it in showing it. "'It's all right if it makes it more comfortable for Penn,' he said to his wife." but the differences remained uneffaced, if not uneffaceable, between the Corys and Tom Corey's wife. If he had only married the colonel, subtly suggested Nanny Corey. There was a brief season of civility and forbearance on both sides, when he brought her home before starting for Mexico, and her father-in-law made a sympathetic feint of liking Penelope's way of talking, but it is questionable if even he found it so delightful as her husband did. Lily Corey made a little ineffectual sketch of her, which she put by with other studies to finish up some time, and found her rather picturesque in some ways. Nanny got on with her better than the rest, and saw possibilities for her in the country to which she was going, 
"'As she's quite unformed socially,' she explained to her mother, "'there is a chance that she will form herself on the Spanish manner, "'if she stays there long enough, "'and that when she comes back she will have the charm of "'not olives, perhaps, but tortillas, whatever they are, "'something strange and foreign, even if it's borrowed. "'I'm glad she's going to Mexico. "'At that distance we can correspond.' "'Her mother sighed and said bravely that she was sure they all got on very pleasantly as it was, and that she was perfectly satisfied if Tom was. There was, in fact, much truth in what she said of their harmony with Penelope. Having resolved from the beginning to make the best of the worst, it might almost be said that they were supported and consoled in their good intentions by a higher power. This marriage had not, thanks to an overruling providence, brought the succession of Lapham teas upon Bromfield Corey, which he had dreaded. The Laphams were far off in their native fastnesses, and neither Lily nor Nanny Corey was obliged to sacrifice herself to the conversation of Irene. They were not even called upon to make a social demonstration for Penelope at a time when, most people being still out of town, it would have been so easy. She and Tom had both begged that there might be nothing of that kind, and though none of the Corys learned to know her very well in the week she spent with them, they did not find it hard to get on with her. There were even moments when Nanny Corey, like her father, had glimpses of what Tom had called her humor, but it was perhaps too unlike their own to be easily recognizable. Whether Penelope, on her side, found it more difficult to harmonize, I cannot say. She had much more of the harmonizing to do, since they were four to one, but then she had gone through so much greater trials before. When the door of their carriage closed and it drove off with her and her husband to the station, she fetched a long sigh. "'What is it?' asked Corey, who ought to have known better. "'Oh, nothing. I don't think I shall feel strange amongst the Mexicans now.' He looked at her with a puzzled smile, which grew a little graver, and then he put his arm round her and drew her closer to him. This made her cry on his shoulder. "'I only meant that I should have you all to myself.' There is no proof that she meant more, but it is certain that our manners and customs go for more in life than our qualities. The price that we pay for civilization is the fine yet impassable differentiation of these. Perhaps we pay too much, but it will not be possible to persuade those who have the difference in their favor that this is so. They may be right, and at any rate, the blank misgiving, the recurring sense of disappointment to which the young people's departure left the quarries is to be considered. That was the end of their son and brother for them. They felt that, and they were not mean or unamiable people. He remained three years away. Some changes took place in that time. One of these was the purchase by the Kanawha Falls Company of the mines and works at Lapham. The transfer relieved Lapham of the load of debt which he was still laboring under, and gave him an interest in the vaster enterprise of the younger men, which he had once vainly hoped to grasp all in his own hand. 
he began to tell of this coincidence as something very striking, and pushing on more actively the special branch of the business left to him, he bragged, quite in his old way, of its enormous extension. His son-in-law, he said, was pushing it in Mexico and Central America, an idea that they had originally had in common. Well, young blood was what they wanted in a thing of that kind. Now, those fellows out in West Virginia, all young and a perfect team. For himself, he owned that he had made mistakes. He could see just where the mistakes were. He put his finger right on them. But one thing he could say, he had been no man's enemy but his own. Every dollar, every cent had gone to pay his debts. He had come out with clean hands. He said all this and much more to Mr. Sewell the summer after he sold out, when the minister and his wife stopped at Lapham on their way across from the White Mountains to Lake Champlain. Lapham had found them on the cars and pressed them to stop off. There were times when Mrs. Lapham had as great pride in the clean-handedness with which Lapham had come out as he had himself, but her satisfaction was not so constant. At those times, knowing the temptations he had resisted, she thought him the noblest and grandest of men, but no woman could endure to live in the same house with a perfect hero, and there were other times when she reminded him that if he had kept his word to her about speculating in stocks, and had looked after the insurance of his property half as carefully as he had looked after a couple of worthless women who had no earthly claim on him, they would not be where they were now. He humbly admitted it all, and left her to think of Rogers herself. She did not fail to do so, and the thought did not fail to restore him to her tenderness again. I do not know how it is that clergymen and physicians keep from telling their wives the secrets confided to them. Perhaps they can trust their wives to find them out for themselves whenever they wish. Sewell had laid before his wife the case of the Laphams after they came to consult with him about Corey's proposal to Penelope, for he wished to be confirmed in his belief that he had advised them soundly. But he had not given her their names, and he had not known Corey's himself. Now he had no compunctions in talking the affair over with her without the veil of ignorance which she had hitherto assumed for she declared that as soon as she heard of Corey's engagement to Penelope, the whole thing had flashed upon her. And that night at dinner I could have told the child that he was in love with her sister by the way he talked about her. I heard him, and if she had not been so blindly in love with him herself, she would have known it too. I must say I can't help feeling a sort of contempt for her sister." "'Oh, but you must not,' cried Sewell. "'That is wrong, cruelly wrong. "'I'm sure that's out of your novel-reading, my dear, "'and not out of your heart. "'Come, it grieves me to hear you say such a thing as that.' "'Oh, I dare say this pretty thing has got over it. "'How much character she has got! "'And I suppose she'll see somebody else.' Sewell had to content himself with this partial concession. As a matter of fact, unless it was the young West Virginian who had come on to arrange the purchase of the works, Irene had not yet seen any one, 
and whether there was ever anything between them is a fact that would need a separate inquiry. It is certain that at the end of five years, after the disappointment which she had met so bravely, she was still unmarried. But she was even then still very young, and her life at Lapham had been varied by visits to the West. It had also been varied by an invitation made with the politest resolution by Mrs. Corey to visit in Boston, which the girl was equal to refusing in the same spirit. Sewell was intensely interested in the moral spectacle which Lapham presented under his changed conditions. The colonel, who was more the colonel in those hills than he ever could have been on the back bay, kept him and Mrs. Sewell overnight at his house, and he showed the minister minutely round the works and drove him all over his farm. For this expedition he employed a lively colt which had not yet come of age, and an open buggy long past its prime, and was no more ashamed of his turnout than of the finest he had ever driven on the mill-dam. He was rather shabby and slovenly in dress, and he had fallen unkempt, after the country fashion, as to his hair and beard and boots. The house was plain, and was furnished with the simpler movables out of the house in Nankeen Square. There were certainly all the necessaries, but no luxuries unless the statues of prayer and faith might be so considered. The Laphams now burned kerosene, of course, and they had no furnace in the winter. These were the only hardships the colonel complained of. But he said that as soon as the company got to paying dividends again, he was evidently proud of the outlays that for the present prevented this, he should put in steam heat and nap the gas. He spoke freely of his failure, and with a confidence that seemed inspired by his former trust in Sewell, whom, indeed, he treated like an intimate friend rather than acquaintance of two or three meetings. He went back to his first connection with Rogers, and he put before Sewell, hypothetically, his own conclusions in regard to the matter. "'Sometimes,' he said, "'I get to thinking it all over.' and it seems to me I'd done wrong about Rogers in the first place, that the whole trouble came from that. It was just like starting a row of bricks. I tried to catch up and stop em from going, but they all tumbled, one after another. It wa'n't in the nature of things that they could be stopped till the last brick went. I don't talk much with my wife any more about it, but I should like to know how it strikes you." "'We can trace the operation of evil in the physical world,' replied the minister, "'but I'm more and more puzzled about it in the moral world. "'There its course is often so very obscure, "'and often it seems to involve, so far as we can see, no penalty whatever. "'And in your own case, as I understand, "'you don't admit, you don't feel sure, "'that you ever actually did wrong this man.' "'Well, I don't know. That is to say—' He did not continue, and after a while Sewell said, with that subtle kindness of his, "'I should be inclined to think nothing can be thrown quite away, and it can't be that our sins only weaken us, that your fear of having possibly behaved selfishly toward this man kept you on your guard, and strengthened you when you were brought face to face with a greater—' 
he was going to say temptation, but he saved Lapham's pride and said, Emergency. Do you think so? I think that there may be truth in what I suggest. Well, I don't know what it was, said Lapham. All I know is that when it come to the point, although I could see that I'd got to go under unless I did it, that I couldn't sell out to those Englishmen, and I couldn't let that man put his money into my business without I told him just how things stood. End of chapter 27 End of The Rise of Silas Lapham by William Dean Howells